Welcome to weekday worship, a week of Thanksgiving. Yes. You say I that. I love Thanksgiving. Do man. you really? Oh, favorite holiday. All right. The, that that throws me into a, a pro-con right on the spot, Thanksgiving or Christmas. Oh, it's not like it's not even close for me, Thanksgiving. Really? Yeah, 100%. Why? Um, it, so <laughs> Christmas is just so commercialized, like, and it and for kids, like when you have a bunch of kids, you have to deal with competing attitudes and wants and it inevitably comes about presence even when you try to go low key and it's more stressful preparing in terms of decorations and it seems like it's more prolonged like you can be days at a time with family and it's you know there's just so much stress around christmas there's uh yeah so i uh whereas thanksgiving it's like you don't have to go spend a bunch of money on presents and the shopping it doesn't necessarily require decorations and it's like you can take a really discontented world and for one week there's no sense of entitlement it's just like everybody's like hey what do we have to be thankful for and you don't have to like you know do a bunch of stuff for it like what's like what's better than a whole world like around you being like just thankful for what's good i can't believe you said that Christmas is not as uh, important to you as Thanksgiving as a pastor. The incarnation of of, of, <laughs> of God the Son. Uh, well, yeah, but there's so much that culturally gets gets slapped onto that, right? Yes. So it's not so the the enjoy. I'm able to enjoy Thanksgiving just more purely as a holiday, like. We do a family football game on Thanksgiving yeah, yeah, yeah. Like with all the nephews. I remember. I played in it last that's year. That's right. Are you going to come this year? If it's a, Is, is you, it still happening? Invited. Yeah, totally. You're invited. I might. I, I, mentioned, to... I mentioned it. Yeah, my brothers and I were talking about it the other day. I mentioned the guys who came last year. and Yeah, so we'll invite a few of you guys, non-family members, to come and fill out the rosters. So, so for me, pro-con Thanksgiving, Christmas, yeah. I think... Thanksgiving, you're right, has less pressure and less distractions in terms yeah. of uh, getting down to what it's really about. Christmas definitely has more of those distractions and more of that kind of worldliness that can be dragged into it. Yeah. But there's nothing like Christmas Eve with my family. Mm. Um, I think there's some tradition there. There's some... Uh, sure. I don't know. There's something special about Christmas Eve for me. Um, so it's kind of a toss-up. So really the question is between Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve, sounds yes. like. <laughs> yes. Well, and I just, we go to the same Chinese restaurant after the, on Christmas Eve Hold every on. year. Hold on. When you said we have a Christmas Eve tradition. We do. I'm picturing the big dining room table nope. and all the fixings nope. and whatever that might be. You go to a Chinese restaurant Sesame for Christmas chicken, Eve. Baby. Sesame Se- chicken. Oh, my goodness. We have been doing that for, oh, gosh, this decades. Is- where my, me and my family, after our Christmas Eve service at uh, the church that all of my family goes to that we all grew up in. This is we disappointing. Go, well, I don't know. This is at like... 8.30-ish p.m. on uh, Christmas Eve, uh, we go to the same uh, Chinese restaurant, and we have sushi, sesame chicken, dumplings. (laughs) I mean, we just pig Nothing says Christmas. Dude, I love it. Like Chinese New Year. I I love it. (laughs) I absolutely love it. Oh, my goodness. It's it's just a funny thing. Like, I don't think... uh, yeah, I don't think teriyaki chicken and fried rice for 
Christmas. Well, I don't. Well, it's usually a lot of times the same stuff, kind of stuff that people eat on Thanksgiving. They eat around Christmas. Yeah, we do. A, we do a different, definitely a different meal. Like we have a traditional one for our family too, and it's like uh, a certain kind of uh, steak that my mom makes, and then uh, we have this one of the favorite dishes is potatoes gourmet. So it's like a oh, it's uh, it's delicious, yeah. and uh, the food's like the best part, right? And then one of my sisters in law makes homemade rolls usually, and salad and broccoli, and then my mom makes individual personalized. What do you make? Cheesecakes. I make the potatoes. You make the potatoes. Yeah. Good. I'm always good for potatoes and cheese. Are we talking about like Paula Deen type potatoes with just loads of butter and salt and <laughs> Yeah, like hundred <laughs> percent. I'm sorry, I didn't know how I didn't I didn't realize how healthy I mean, I didn't know, I didn't, uh, you know I'm just sesame chicken was. Uh, well there's yeah, there's some <laughs> some oils in that too. So but. you're a Christmas guy, I'm a Thanksgiving guy. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably I mean theologically, obviously there's a there's a depth to the incarnation <laughs> and yes. a richness there that's that's not the same presence at, that you don't have that kind of embedded within Thanksgiving. But I just think the general I, I appreciate the the uh, spirit around Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I mean, it's also soiled. Like when you start having kids, and you know where you're contending with, like I said, the attitudes and yeah. stuff that can sometimes go around. And we, we, we don't do a huge Christmas yeah. thing. Like we try to keep it a little tamped down and yeah. Anyway. And a lot of times yeah. the sports are better on Thanksgiving than they are. hundred percent. Like, yeah. It centers around football versus basketball. I mean, Christmas I love basketball more, but those games are usually more hyped than, well, and they're meaningless games, right? It's the beginning of the regular season the, for, well, they NBA. remind, they remind you of the all-star games a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. So, they, they have like the little hat on the icons on the little Oh, the jerseys are always super yeah, weird. Remember yeah. they debuted those in the NBA a couple years ago? They debuted those not jersey, but just shirts. Yeah, but we you just lost half our audience talking we did. about NBA uniforms on Christmas Day. We did. So let's get something more. Uh, <laughs> hey, I, I did want to mention too. We did Now it's the last time he gets to do that for about a month. So Oh, that's what we'll, you think. We'll allow it. We got requests. That's from I, last week. I don't week. know anything about that. I'm checking out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going on <laughs> a sabbatical. I got a few things I'm working on. Yeah, Caleb's so going to be gone. I have to take over the podcast. The the structured episodes will be leaving. <laughs> what are you trying to say? Uh, for a month. This is my last episode. We, we're going to do a special Christmas episode mid-December. Okay. But, yeah, we got, I got a couple interested parties in joining me. So I don't know what James has up his sleeve or doesn't. Stay, um, stay tuned. But this is my last episode for, for a little bit. It's been a good run. It has been. Thanks for uh, taking the lead on this. And it's fitting that we we started our podcast. Uh, how many months ago was that now? August. August. Yeah, we started in August. We started talking about the Word of God. Um, our first episode was on the Bible. And uh, I woke up this morning to think through our topic, which was we're, we're getting back to our uh, repentance. Oh, you wanted to do favorite books. I do. I was getting there. Gonna, okay, I'm sorry. I'm I a just, methodical host, we were, James. Good, good, I'm good. a methodical My host. My bad. Um, our, our themes of repentance, our prayers of repentance through the different churches in uh, Revelation. We've talked about those uh, those things from a lot of different angles, but we, we haven't really dug into the actual text of those uh, churches a lot. And the one uh, today, the Church of Sardis, I, I, I just sat, I read the passage myself, uh, looking at the prayer that we prayed, and really just wanted to dive into the passage um, and uh, focus on uh, the words of Scripture themselves on that church. But I did promise, as James mentioned, uh, that we would uh, tell you our favorite books of the Bible. After yep. our conversation on literacy last week, we didn't get to um, 
You want me to go first for you? Good. Caleb, so, what's your favorite book in the Bible? Oh, funny you ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tie between Ecclesiastes and Mark. Um, I could talk about Ecclesiastes all day. It, um, I connect to the book of Ecclesiastes a lot in the ways that I think and the um, uh, kind of just the... Uh, the reflections on the world that Ecclesiastes brings out and, and kind of works through are, are, are something people don't know about you is that you've got a, a pretty significant poetry poetry streak. I do. I like to write. So um, so when you say that, that's one of the things that just dawned on me is like that's I wonder if that's one of the reasons you like it because it's more yeah. poetic and sort of its wisdom literature formatting. And I like to write about and think about big life decisions, sure. our mortality. It's more philosophical. I think so. Yeah. 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 So that's sure. a favorite book. But in terms of like book that I, I just come back to over and over again in terms of the, the, the meat of the scriptures uh, is the Gospel of Mark. It's my favorite gospel. I love the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's like you're... It's so funny. Why is that funny? It's my least favorite gospel. Why? Uh, I don't know. Well, I, go ahead and tell us why that you like it so much. So uh, it's, That sounds it, terrible to say. Like, it does. It does sound terrible to say. <laughs> it's my... I love all of the Gospels. It's the one... I love the other three more. <laughs> yes. So the, the reason I love Mark is because it, it, it's so to the point. It, it's so focused in its purpose. And it, uh, it, it gives you the snapshots of Jesus' ministry um, with a consistent theme throughout. I, the opening of Mark is like my favorite opening to a book. Let me turn to it real quick. Um, but if you don't know, Mark is, the, is we think, the first Gospel written. Um, it's the shortest. And uh, if you look at it, if you look at Matthew and Mark, Matthew is just the Mark with sermons. So Mark has like five sermons, I think, that are long. Uh, you think about the Sermon on the Mount, all the discourse, a few others. Um, if you look at how Matthew lays out his gospel, it's literally just the events of Mark with inserted sermons. Yeah, Mark is the... I think Mark, especially for like a new Christian, um, somebody exploring Jesus for the first time, is a pretty good place to start. It's the most condensed. It's the most efficient, fast-moving, kind of action-packed, not a lot of fluff. Yeah. Uh, he uses this term immediately. The, 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 it's a Greek word called euthes, but it, but it means immediately, and you see this over and over in his garden. Right. You see him say, immediately Jesus did this. Immediately this happened. He's yeah. like, he's moving methodically through Jesus' life. Yeah, there's a life. sense of urgency and almost yes. cadence to his writing. Yeah. But the opening to Mark's gospel is just like, roll the curtain. Like, it reminds me of like Star Wars. At the beginning of Star Wars, you have the orchestra music and then the, the roll of the, of, the, of the plot, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is uh, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I love that. Boom. I mean, he just throws out his purpose right here at the gospel. Yeah, he doesn't. Spent. He doesn't spend time on Christmas, right? He doesn't. He 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 he, 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 he kind of skips skips that, and we get that other places. But he, he's yeah, wanting he gets to get straight to the ministry of Jesus. Yes, really. he does. And and yeah. one of the really cool things about Mark is there's some contextual things that make it exciting for me. Is we think that Mark was written to. Uh, its purpose was that he was writing to uh, persecuted Christians around Rome. Right. And uh, the significance there is when you think of an author's purpose in his writing, and then you, uh, you have that in mind as you read, you see all these moments uh, in Jesus' gospel, where, whether Jesus himself or his disciples or his followers are at these key moments of, of falling away and they don't. 
mm-hmm. of falling away in the dough, of there's pressure and they don't. And, and Mark was writing to bring hope to, to persecuted Christians in the ultimate story of the mm-hmm. gospel. That's a beautiful thought. Another thing that's really contextual, contextually cool about Mark for me is we think that Mark was written um, partly to be performed, so it was written partly to be obviously recited. Most of the gospels and our epistles, they were they were they were read out loud. It wasn't right. like a lot of people were sitting around with their copies. They were being read in the church and stuff. But we think that Mark itself uh, partly was 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 written to be performed, almost like a Greek uh, play. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's this incredible when you, when you break that down in the text, you see all these different roles like uh, of characters that are coming out. But um, the coolest part is the ending of Mark for me. Um, especially if you th- if you think about it in this this idea of being performed. So if you look at the end of Mark's gospel, chapter sixteen, verses nine through twenty, uh, I promise you, if you look at your Bible, they'll all be bracketed with, uh, and they'll they'll tell you that we don't it's really the snake handling thing. Yes, and the drinking of poison. This is why it's your favorite. No, well, we don't think that was actually written in Mark, <laughs> right? So verses 9 through 20 of, of Mark's gospel, chapter 16, the ending, we think that uh, that some, not malicious people, but they, Christians just wanted it's to add an ending. Copies. They it's, wanted to yeah. add an ending to Mark to kind of make it fit or make it make sense, and, and uh, so they added a few things. And, and your Bible showed that bracketed. Yeah. But if you look at the end of Mark's gospel, um, and you see... Jesus, you know, he, he rises from the tomb, and the, the women go to the, the tomb right to see him. And this is how Mark's gospel really ends. Verse 8, or, or maybe look at verse, uh, verse 7 where, where uh, the, the angel talks to them. He says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So there's the, the command to, to go tell the disciples uh, mm-hmm. to the women go tell people. And this is the last verse that we think Mark wrote in his gospel. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's a really weird ending to a gospel, right? It's like this kind of cliffhanger of like, <laughs> well, they went out astonished and afraid. What happened? And we think Mark, he, he didn't finish the story, so his readers would realize, no, the, the people who have to go tell this is me. Mm-hmm. The people who have to go uh, flee the tomb of the risen Jesus and proclaim it to the world and tell other people about the, the, the mission of Jesus being completed, yeah. it's left in your court. Mm. And it's an unbelievable kind of finish to a, I can just imagine it being kind of uh, rolled out in a play-like scenario where you hear that and it just dawns on you and the, the audience of, yeah, there's nobody left to do this. It's, it, I have to do this. Well, you know? and it's, it's almost invitational too, in the sense of, of it's identifying those who were entrusted with that responsibility were left, who were left with that are terrified like you are. Yeah. Right. Yes. They, they too had fears. One hundred percent. They too were were reticent or, or, or apprehensive <laughs> about this, and so it puts you in good company of of uh, weak, needy disciples of Jesus um, who need the help of their Lord yeah. Himself to actually go and yeah. bear witness to these things. So, 
Yeah, that's cool. So there's a lot of things we can say about Mark. That's just, I just love that gospel. I could talk about well, it all day. One Would that, love to. I, I don't know. Maybe there's, I guess, some lack of certainty about this, but there's also the unique thing about Mark's, Mark being the writer of this gospel. Um, I mean, we're going through the book of Acts right now. We've, we just yeah. were introduced to John Mark, right? And he was on that first missionary journey and went home early and becomes this point of contention for Paul and Barnabas. And then we'll see later him come back into the fold of, of faithful um, the people and even respected and appreciated by Paul himself. And, but, but Mark's writing of this is also in many ways thought to be according to the, the, the eyewitness testimony of Peter. In yeah, many cases, influenced right? by so, Peter for sure. Right, so it's Peter's witness as recorded by Mark. And so you're getting a few different angles there. And so, I mean, so, you know, Peter obviously is this massive figure in the new Testament and in the early church that, that, uh, when you think that this is, these are the things that were kind of sticking out to him that giving an account of Jesus's life and ministry. Yeah. Uh, this was what was most important. Yeah. So, um, cool. Uh, so mine is a different gospel. (laughs) Just really not a different gospel, a different, one of the four gospels. Like, the gospel according we believe, to Caleb John. and I believe the same gospel. We do. Yes. Um, so no, far. my favorite, but my favorite book of the Bible and probably, and, and it would be a gospel as well. And that's the gospel of John. And it's funny because this probably reflects some of our personality differences too. Hmm. Like, um, what I love about John is it was written later. And so it mostly like, because Mark and Matthew have such similarities and Luke draws from a lot of those same, or tells a lot of those same stories yeah, and stuff. The synoptic, the synoptic gospels. We, yeah. Right. So those three are largely have a lot of overlap. Whereas John, you know, the vast majority of John's material is unique to John. And so when he set out to write this account, he did so to fill in some of the gaps and to even tell some longer stories of different things. And, um, and so some of you guys are going, yeah, well, Caleb's more efficient with time and James is a little <laughs> more drawn out and, uh, verbose. So, yeah. So, but I think there's a tenderness in John, uh, just at a personality level that I admire and, and it, that draws me in. He had this sort of, you know, you can sort of see the almost impetuousness of Peter. His personality comes out in the gospel of Mark, right? A little bit in terms of that, like immediately, immediately. So he's on to the next thing. Like, yeah. Whereas John is kind of more lingering in places yeah. and, and, uh, and, and I, I think that was a slowing down of his character. I think he, cause you know, when Jesus first beats him, he's called the sons of thunder. Sure. Right, and he's sure, just sure. that which was a well, and he's writing his gospel in his old age, right? Yes. For so sure. he, he's it's like an old man thinking through, yeah. much more humbly the the biggest things in his life. Yeah, but I just love the way that he. I mean, there's there's passages in John that just that just capture me. Yeah. And I just you know, I mean, some of my favorite, many of my favorite scriptures are throughout the Gospel of John, and the the portrait that he gives us of the real Jesus is so compelling and so beautiful and captivating and multifaceted. Um, and, uh, uh, it just, it, it, it hits me at every level of my person, like, um, in a way where like I can read Mark and it's very, like you said, action packed and you kind it's kind of like movement, right? Uh, you can read Luke and there's a lot of detail in Luke and, um, and so it's got a uniqueness. And then Matthew writing to a Jewish audience is connecting so much of kind of Old Testament and aspects of the law to the Jesus and his fulfillment of the law and those things. And I don't know, but there's something about the way John writes that um, that just my heart just, he opens up, it opens up my heart a different yeah, way. Yeah, for think. sure. Um, and so there's a, 
yeah, that's what that's what gets me. I think I'll leave it there. There you go. Favorite books of the Bible. The other thing I said to you earlier was like, uh, there's also a part of me that like the favorite. My favorite book happens to often be the book I'm currently preaching through. Yeah. And so, like right now, I'm in love with Acts and like. I, when you mentioned Ecclesiastes, I remember preaching through Ecclesiastes and it just being enthralling, you know, like it's just like there's so much wisdom yeah. <laughs> in there. And, and uh, so books that I'm most immersed in at any given point tend to be the most uh, prominent in my mind at that point. Yeah. So. And you've always loved the seven seals of Revelation. I love <laughs> the seven seals of Revelation. I love everything about you've Revelation. You've loved giving very dogmatic great, interpretations of the great seven segue. seals of <laughs> Revelation. Great segue. Let's go to Revelation 3, man. Yeah, we actually aren't going to talk about the seven seals today. No. Maybe that, that's for a different year. Um, no, we, have, we have a mention of the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits. Seven stars. Yes, which would... I didn't want to mention that because we, we could take 20 minutes to explain why there are seven spirits of God. There's all sorts of ex- exegesis to be done in this book. <laughs> there is. So we're not going to do all of it here. But we're going to do some of it. Um, but here's the prayer. So so the prayer that we prayed months and months ago now um, on this particular church as a church ourselves um, uh, goes something like this. Well, this was the, the, the lead part of the prayer that we prayed. It was, uh, God, we have buried ourselves with religious and social activity. We have given ourselves to projects and causes and programs. We have become activists and advocates for all kinds of things, many of them good. But we have lost sight of you and your gospel within those efforts. We have done good works, but forsaken the good news. We have extended grace towards others, but stayed silent about the grace that is only in Jesus. We have presumed to make life better for others while neglecting the life that is truly life. Lord, we have acted on our own strength to do good for our own name. So that's kind of that's that's the prayer that. James pulled or, or kind of uh, crafted from the text. So, uh, James, why don't you just read the text, Revelation 3, 1 mm-hmm. through 6. Yeah. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. you, yet, you yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the first thing when you and I were texting about this passage this morning was that you mentioned that there's no commendation here. There's no, yeah. in, there's not a lot of encouragement, which is yeah. so different from the Jesus and in, in many of the other churches has at least something, something nice positive to say, to say, something positive to say, yeah, and, and the, he doesn't hear. There's a structure to these letters that are written to these churches, and and so it essentially includes. You could probably break it down into four components. There's some sort of kind of uh, a relevant introduction to that church. There's um, a sort of evaluation of them and then sort of an exhortation that comes out of it and then a sort of 
uh, a promise or motivation or reward that would come, you know, from it. And that, so all of them are structured that way kind of. And so in the evaluation, most of them include a, a sort of affirmation of something that is good about, about who they are and what they're about. And, and yet this one is, um, overwhelmingly stark in its evaluation. Um, so, and I, I, another trying to draw these differences out between the uniqueness of Sardis here and, and the others is, and many of the others, like the ones that we're dealing with sexual immorality that we, lo- that we looked at before, uh, the people who were engaging in that were a minority in the church. But here, it seems like the, the majority is who Jesus is actually talking to. Yeah. So, he sa- so he says that uh, only a few have not soiled or stained their garments. So it right. seems to be that the, the righteous ones are the minority instead of the majority here, where that seems to be different compared to the other churches. Sure. Um, and the crazy thing about this church is you don't really see specifically what Jesus is talking about. Like the others, it's very clear. Some were dealing with sexual morality. Some were dealing with, with, uh, with uh, worldly possessions, those sorts of things. Here it seems like Jesus is talking about a general posture, or attitude, or spirit that uh, can't, you can't just put your finger on a, on a checklist and find. So you don't hear any talk of Jesus talking about bad theology here. You don't hear him talk about sexual immorality here. You don't hear him talk about um, uh, 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 clinging to riches here. There's not an external kind of pinpoint here. Mm. There's rather uh, something deeper that has infected the whole church. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, this is so much of what I think we've come to hopefully talk. I mean, I, I talk about this a lot. It's something that, like, this is a warning every church needs to hear. Absolutely especially probably in a religiously um, developed environment like ours um, in, in, in America. Um, so I think about this, this idea of deadness that he speaks to, right? And um, I, the way, you know, I, I, one of the articles that I have all of anybody that does discipleship kind of cohorts or leadership development and something that I've talked a lot about is uh, uh, an article from Francis Schaeffer called The Lord's Work and the Lord's Way. I think what we have here, it, the thrust of that, of that when we talk about that almost, almost as a philosophy of ministry is that, that you have three categories that you might think in, and one is the work of the devil, and then you have the work of the Lord, but in the power of the flesh, and then you have the work of the Lord and the power of the Spirit. And most people would believe that the great chasm would be between categories one and two, but in fact, the great chasm is between categories two and three. And I think that's probably what we have here from the indication is that we have a church that's doing the work of the Lord, but decidedly, and uh, like they're giving themselves to good things, but it's all in the power of the flesh and for the glory of self. Um, And it is not out of a spiritual aliveness to God and a love for God and infidelity to Jesus. Yeah, this seems like one of the earliest manifestations of nominal Christianity. Yeah. Uh, Stott, John Stott writes this about the, the church in Sardis, and I thought this, this kind of illustrates it well. He said, It was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor. But outward appearances are notor- notoriously deceptive. And this socially distinguished congregation was a spiritual graveyard. It seemed to be alive, but it was actually dead. 
It had a name for virility, but it had no right to its name. Its works were beautiful, grave cloths, which were but a thin disguise for this ecclesiastical corpse. The eyes of Christ saw beyond the clothes, clothes to the skeleton. It was dead as mutton. It even stank. <laughs> <laughs> Eloquent ending from Stott. I, that, that phrase that was really striking and piercing to me of uh, a spiritual graveyard. Yeah. That's a really, I think that's a, a really succinct way of capturing this. And like, he, I think he captures what, what's amazing. He says, right, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. So when he says that you're dead, he's not talking about a church that's down to their last 15 members who mm-hmm. are aging out and no. dying off. And there's just, right, this is not a church that's got few members. This is probably something of what we would think of as a mega church. This yeah. is a church that's known in the community. That's successful. That's, yeah, it's successful outwardly. Everybody goes there. All the prominent people go there. You can't have find anybody that says a bad thing about this church. They're doing great things in the community. They've got yeah. great offerings for the community. Maybe they've got that sports ministry for youth, and they've got that that feeding program for the poor, and they've got yeah. they're doing a lot of good things, and people love them. There's not a bad thing people would say about them, mm-hmm. and that's so striking when you set it against the contrast of these other six churches, who are all of them. I believe, and I didn't read through them all again today, but I believe all of them have, are at, at some level receiving persecution, criticism. They're on yes. the underside of the culture. Yes. The church in Sardis is not. Yes. And that's exactly what it is that Jesus has against them. They are utterly inoffensive yeah. to the community around them. And it's because yeah. they've given into some kind of cultural accommodation where they've removed the offense of the gospel so that they could be liked by everybody and it's left them lifeless inside. Yeah. It, uh, another commentator wrote about this passage about the church and Sardis. It was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. Yeah. That, and, I, and here's the thing. I think we're kind of used to that here. We're used to, to nominal... Christianity in, in our in our day and age in our context and and what's being talked about here, the first century church was not used to that. Yeah. It it was abhorrent to have that kind of Christianity about you because it was so it was so fresh to Christ's resurrection and the and the church moving and the and the persecution going on around them. I think we're just we're very used to these types of churches all around us, whereas the early church. They weren't used to these congregations and mm. could see very clearly this is in a different category of a church that's dealing with immaturity and sin, but is, uh, but is zealous for the Lord and the grace mm-hmm. of God. Uh, this was a whole different category of a church who thought themselves sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. So they figured out how to build ministry. I'd said a couple of weeks ago uh, something that uh, um, Chuck Swindoll says, right? The danger in ministry is that we can come get to a place where we can do it. Right? Yes. That's what they've done. They've yes. begun to just do ministry. Yes. But there's, they've removed the edge of the gospel. And so perhaps they're activists, they're busy, they're, you know, they've got good works. But the, the living presence of the Holy Spirit is absent from this people. Yes. And almost entirely. And they, they probably don't know that it's left. They probably don't know that it's gone. They think it's there. It yeah. reminds me of it reminds me of Samson in the book of Judges, after he 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 uh, chapter sixteen verse twenty, he he loses his 
the Spirit of God with him. Mm-hmm. But verse uh, after he wakes up and and goes out to fight the Philistines for the first time without his without his strength, verse six, uh, chapter sixteen, verse twenty of Judges says uh, he did not know the Lord had departed from him. Mm. What a, what an incredible verse to not know that the Spirit of God has departed from you when yeah. you walk out in strength. Yeah, you feel so good about yourself that you're not even. It doesn't even dawn on you that the Spirit would like. So because this is a congregational reality or a a characteristic of this entire community, what you find is that this is a church that everybody in the town is happy to endorse and happy to attend, and it's a church Jesus would never go to. Yeah. And, And the question I end up thinking through and asking then is like, how many of our churches are churches that a lot of people would love to come to, but Jesus would never feel welcome there? In fact, Jesus isn't welcome there. And that's essentially what this is boiled down to, is that they've become so uh, obsessed with, with being at peace with their culture mm-hmm. that they've actually, in, in James's words, right, in James's letter, they've become friendly with the world in a way that has become enmity towards God. Yeah. And uh, so it's a church of real compromise and cultural accommodation that has left, led to a, a deadness. And, and we know it's not entirely dead, but like at one level, there's a, it's almost as if John is, or Jesus is overstating the case initially to kind yes. of jolt them because yeah, he then sure. says there are some, Yeah. right? So it's like the, the landscape looks really bleak, but, yeah. but you know, there's, there's not a lot of greenery on the horizon, but there's yeah. a few things here and there popping up. Right. And yeah. so there's, there's something somewhere that still has a, yeah. has a chance here of, of resurrection and and so he news. starts he starts in verse two to kind of move towards okay giving some commands to to change course he says wake up and strengthen what remains uh, and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God so that's an interesting phrase there when he talks mm. I have not found your works complete in the sight of God and uh, if you look look at uh, Revelation two nineteen you find uh, what what did God approve of in, in, in our works? And it says, uh, talks about things like love, faith, service, patient, endurance. All these were, were no doubt evident in Sardis. These were things that were, were happening, but, but in a haphazard, half-hearted, incom- incomplete way. Perhaps their motives were wrong. Perhaps they performed the deeds well enough, but did so uh, for selfish, even mercenary reasons. Mm. So uh, again, I think Jesus points deeper underneath actions to heart postures, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that we have a really hard time doing because we're satisfied with us just doing something that we're required of us without doing it with the heart and posture that, that Christ asks, asks of us. Um, Mm. and so that's where I, that's where I think he's going with that, with that, uh, that phrase in verse two. Yeah. I think there's, uh, an indicator too, when he says, you know, I haven't found your works complete in the sight of God, but when he says, remember then what you received and heard. Um, so he's calling them back to their initial, let's say, conversion. Yes. He's calling them back to when the, the gospel first gave newness yeah. of life and their responsiveness to that. Yeah. One of the cursory things, if you look up these words, is that uh, probably a, a more literal translation of this wouldn't be what you received and heard in terms of its content, but it would be rather how you received it, which goes back mm. to this posture of heart. And so it's really talking about the how. And it's, well, how do you receive newness of life in Jesus? And it's 
it's repentance and faith, right? It's that, yeah. the, a repentant faith towards uh, Christ in response to the gospel is how you begin life with God. And he's saying, you haven't completed this. What he means is like you started there and then you left that behind essentially, right? That you yeah. stopped paying attention to that and you stopped walking. Like we, we, we often mention that life as a disciple of Jesus comes back to the simplicity of that at Colossians 2.6, that yeah. as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ... So walk in him. That yeah, and that's one. You could pair. You could literally put that verse that you just mentioned right next to here in verse three, because the three things that Jesus says to do here is remember, mm-hmm. hold fast, and start obeying. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, simply what he said. Re- remember what you've received. Hold fast. Keep it, mm-hmm. and start repenting. And when what he means by that is not just say sorry, but actually turn yeah. uh, from your wicked ways. Yeah. And you have this, and it's bookended by, number one, wake up, and then at the end saying, if you will not wake up, there's this sort of, um, uh, what's that called? There's a, there's a device in the uh, Inclusio, where you have like that same idea that's mentioned on mm-hmm. like bracketing mm-hmm. a, a sort of thought strand. Yeah. And so it's at the beginning and again at the end to sort of for emphasis. And it's that idea of, like, this idea of waking up is an idea of alertness and watchfulness. There's a sort of urgency here. Yeah. And so he's, he's calling them, and I would say he's calling us to, to that, to a posture of watchfulness. Yeah. That every single one of us and every single one of our churches is prone towards something of this kind of drift towards lifelessness. Yeah. And, and the only way you can tend to that is by remember. What, what were the three things you said? Remember, remember, hold fast, hold fast, repent, repent, obey. Right, and so it's we so desperately want the Christian life to be more complicated than that, yeah, and maybe more exciting, or like we want there to be new things that we can do that are you know different than the old things. We get tired yeah. of doing the same thing, but he's partly going like, no, yeah. there's not a new way to live the Christian life. Yeah, and I I, I think part of the way to remember and hold fast in a spiritually invigorating way is is uh, to find ways in our life to see and savor Christ more and more. Mm-hmm. By remembering uh, that sweetness of Christ as we first did when we all came to Christ and, and that newness that, uh, of darkness to, to light, but also as we age in, in, uh, as children of God, mm-hmm. finding ways to see and savor new aspects of who Christ is new aspects of the gospel. Yeah. Um, I think about, um, Betsy and I get the privilege of doing, a, you know, a fair amount of premarital counseling with, with couples who are about to get married. And so in that we will hear their stories. And, um, I, I will say this real quick on the pod. We've got a landscaping crew yeah. <laughs> next door to the, we like the to Rowell. keep our offices the, very, uh, the weekday worship studios. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you can hear that, if that will come through, but if it is, we apologize. Uh, there are leaves blowing in the wind behind us. Um, but in premarital counseling with couples, you know, you, you get to hear their story and of their relationship and their proposal and how they, you know, brought, came to this point. And inevitably, as we talk through marriage, we share a lot of our story and we talk very openly and share a lot of that journey. And, and one of the things I always enjoy about that is wherever Betsy and I are in that stage of our marriage, and sometimes we go into that and we're in a really good place, and sometimes we go into that and we're, you know, maybe it's a little harder and a little more uh, of a struggle. But any time that I'm called back to like talking about the origins of our story 
and the, the, the way that God's kind of architected our journey, so to speak. And, um, and then also, as I remember the biblical call of, and, and as I walk couples through that, it, it softens my heart so much to yeah. just remember, to reconnect to that. And I remember that I love this woman. I enjoy this woman. It's not just, you know, a life of drudgery of, you know, life together and six kids and all the things that come with that, which can be, we, you know, in, in a marriage, you can, you can go to that place of, we're just going through the motions and you're not really caring for one another. So every time I do premarital counseling, it reengages me in a fresh way um, by these things of remembering, holding fast and then repenting and going forward and going back to some of those old things. Yeah, for sure. And it's like that in our relationship with Christ. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And so he moves on here, verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So you've got this idea here. I think a lot of people, when they think soiled, when I think soiled, I think a kid who peed himself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what I think of. That's not what's going on here. This was talking about. Uh, <laughs> yes. This was talking about uh, dying garments. So white garments uh, that would be used, especially ecclesiastical garments, even okay. uh, would be. If they got stained or if they were dyed and turned a different color, mm. uh, which was it, Sardis, something about the city, it was one of the first, it was a place where they first started uh, experimenting with dyeing different materials, different cloths. And so it was contextual, this city, Did that imagery. You on that, nice. <laughs> but um, so, the, so the idea here is there's, there's a few who, who haven't... Uh, fallen into this trap who haven't compromised and that is uh as unhopeful as jesus seems to be here he's 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 very uh he's very focused on a remnant which Mm. um a remnant of people who can change the tide uh here um what's it's uh, and i don't know revelations filled with this kind of stuff of like repeated ideas and you have to go back but i'm pretty sure Right, it was in the beginning of Revelation where he talked about Jesus as the the one clothed in white and who is worthy to receive praise. Like that, so that image has already been presented, I think, in the book of Revelation mm-hmm. of Jesus. And so partly what he's doing here is he's going, there are some who are united to Christ. There are some who have been, who are like him, right? Like that there is, even in the midst of this kind of dead landscape or, yeah. or lifeless landscape, yeah. that's, that's still So going. I'm looking at my notes here and some... Uh, some New Testament scholars looking at this passage and talking about that soiled, stained idea here of the garments. There's a couple other passages in, in Revelation chapter 14 that talk about this idea of soiled, uh, soiled, using that verb or terminology. And it, and even in the midst of, of Sardis here, the, the contextual idea that the commentators talk about is uh, that the that the soiled or stained garments were evidence that their sin was either idolatry or that their decision to suppress their witness by assuming a low profile in idolatrous context of the pagan culture in which they had daily interaction. So there's like a meshing of the world with the garments of Christianity here, that a compromise of, uh, of not being set apart. Read um, that phrase again that you said in terms of their... Uh, Accommodate or 
What was that? The soiled or stained garments were evidence that their sin was either idolatry or their decision to suppress, suppress their witness yeah. by assuming a low profile in idolatrous <laughs> context of the pagan culture in which they da- oh had daily gosh. interaction. Like how guilty are we of that? Yes. Assuming a low profile in the pagan context. Yes. Man, that's... So I had preached on, you know, praying for revival last week. And I mean, I think, I think this is something worthy of our consideration. Like, have we, like, let's not move on from that and think, well, thank God we're not that church. Yeah. We might be. Yeah. Like that could be us. We could easily enough be a church that has settled for a low profile of like happy to be ignored by the culture. Yeah. Happy to be seen as harmless. Hmm. But the verse here talks about those who have not been soiled um, as that remnant, as that faithful few in that church that could change the tide. And, and, and Christ gives them a, a comfort that they will walk in white for they are worthy. And then verse 5, he said something that I think is worth some, on the surface seems uh, tricky, but I think it's worth us exploring for a second. Uh, the verse reads, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. Mm-hmm. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So uh, obviously this is in the context of that remnant of those who could, who are faithful, who, are, who could change the tide, but also who are faithful even if the tide, the tide doesn't change in that church. And, and he says those who conquer or conquerors, uh, they'll continue to be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out blot his name out of the book of life Mm. um so on the surface that sounds interesting because it sounds like if your name's in the book of life you could be uh you could be written out or erased um on the surface that seems uh like you could lose your salvation in some way um and there's some there's we need to take a little exegetical look at that because I think this is actually a passage of comfort that Jesus is giving us. Well, that's, and I think that's, yeah, and I haven't done a deep dive on the study of this, right? So, but, but I will say at the surface is we would be wrong to read this as a threat. Yes. It is an intended statement of reassurance. Yes. And comfort and like security. Yes. So it's not saying, he's not, he's not saying that, Hey, it's possible that if your name's written in the book of life, it could still like if you if you screw up on too many times, it could be taken out. Yeah. He's simply saying, like, those who are in this category of who overcome, I will never forsake them. I will yeah. never. Like this is sort of like Jesus when he says, um, whoever comes to me and, yes. and uh, I'll never cast out. Yeah. Right? So it's a statement of to instill confidence and settledness into us, um, into the faithful, not a threat. That if you don't, this is what would happen. Yeah. So uh, when I'm doing some research on this passage this morning, um, the context that I think just makes this beautiful here is uh, this idea of the book of life. Obviously, the book of life is a is a theme throughout Scripture in different ways. You mm-hmm. see that term used in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's predominantly used in a book of life uh, for believers who God has uh, redeemed for himself. Um uh, but there's other ways in which the the context here there uh, uh, is 
almost a polemic against a, a different kind of book. So in ancient cities, especially ancient Greek cities in the Mediterranean here, uh, kings and, and governments, they kept census records of people. Like you think of the census record that, that Jesus and his family had to yeah. do early on. Um, and uh, that was a... that that. Uh, signified your citizenship you know you were on the census roll and that so you had you could claim citizenship and those sorts of things but um, uh, uh, evil kings or, or kind of finicky uh, rulers if they got upset with you they could take you off the roll basically if you died or if they got or, or if you committed a crime and they didn't like it they would just rip your citizenship from you mm. right and, uh, and there's this image here uh, of Jesus saying, even if you've failed, but you come and you, you, and you, and you, uh, you remember, mm-hmm. you uh, hold fast, and you start obeying, mm-hmm. I'll never take you out of my book. I'm not like those kings mm-hmm. who can just rip you out and rip you back in on, on the fl- on the, uh, by the, the spin of his hand. I, I will never blot you out of my book. Yeah. So there's this polemic against that kind of wishy-washiness uh, of security that Jesus is actually working against. And he calls the people who, who he will not blot out of his book uh, overcomers. And that's a reference to Christians, all Christians. Right. All Christians in the last day who, who are united to Christ will be uh, overcome. And this is a theme throughout the book of Revelation of we are characterized, Christians are characterized as as those who overcome. And the idea is that this is being written, again, to churches who are in compromised positions culturally, politically, yeah. socially, and so they're enduring a lot of persecution. And the idea of overcoming is those who persist in repentance and faith, yes. those who persist trusting in Christ ultimately yeah. over and against you know all these other threats and, and things. And so as, as you endure faithfully, the hardships that surround you in a posture of repentance and faith towards the Lord, then you are those who overcome. And, yeah. Uh, and, and it's interesting that Jesus, he couches this in negative terms. Right. He says, I will never uh, blot you out of, of my book. Um, and so if it's couched in, in negative terms, the answer to what we're trying to figure out here is obvious. Jesus, because he couldn't say, I will write your name in the book of life. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because uh, because the names of the overcomers were already written in the book of life from right. eternity past, right? right? So, in other words, we must take note of what Jesus does not say. He does not say that anyone will be erased from the book of life. Rather, he says the overcomers will not be erased. His word is a promise of security to overcomers, not a threat of insecurity to those who lapse. And and then and there's also that. There's almost like, a, again, a, a, an emphasis on that because not only will he never blot it out, so it's written in the book of life. Yeah. He won't blot it out, and then he's going to go a step further. He's going to confess it. Like, yeah. So now he's going to articulate your name. He's going to speak your name before the yeah. Father, which is hearkening back to... Oh, which of the God, Matthew, maybe Matthew 10 ish, something like that, where Jesus says that if you name me before men, I'll name you before my father. Yes. yes. And so that we know this has to be speaking to their boldness and willingness to witness. Yes. Because that's kind of that context that Jesus says those things is like, you name me before men, I'll name you before my father. So, so part of their accommodation is, Hey guys, we're not going to make you uncomfortable and we're not going to offend you by sharing this gospel or spreading this gospel or making a big deal about this gospel. It's back to that suppressed, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of easy suppressed witness. uh, Yeah. The suppressed witness. And, and so, 
this is really a call to to boldness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think a lot of people can get caught up in in the in the harsh warnings of texts like Revelation and not realize that it, this is just how God has chosen as one of his means in preserving his people uh, to use warnings to preserve them. Mm-hmm. So something I like to say all the time is God ordains the ends. He ordains that that I'm going to by Jesus by holding fast to Jesus I will get to the end and run my race. But he also ordains the means. And one of the means by which he has chosen to preserve me and preserve you and to and to call us to hold fast to Christ is by warnings. Mm-hmm. That is a that is a wise parenting move. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and so and so certainly we, we all do it. We as... don't need to take these warnings in the effect of uh, of of losing confidence in the finished work of Christ, but rather see them as gracious signposts from the Savior Himself who laid His life down for us. That we wouldn't that we would not spoil the goodness and freedom of that preservation all the way yeah. to the end. Yeah, they're they're essentially it's like a coach in the huddle with his team at the end of a game, and yeah. and they're tired, and you know it's condition, it's mental fatigue, it's physical fatigue, and you're you're urgently, you know, ur- you're you're pleading with your team, right, and you're trying yeah. to rally them, and uh, to to kind of dig a little deeper, and yeah. um, and that's the kind of I think yeah idea behind that. So so why don't we in here with the with the response prayer of. Uh, that you wrote based off this passage. Um, It goes something like this. Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us for substituting ourselves in your place, for trying to be for people what only you can be for them. Forgive us for all the frenetic activity that is of the flesh and void of the spirit. Forgive us for undertaking your work, but relying on our strategies, our efforts, our wisdom, our organization, and our agendas, rather than upon your power. Forgive our damnable good works that make much of us and which make us feel good about ourselves, but which bring people no closer to you. Lord, lead us back toward reliance upon you in everything. Help us to walk in active repentance and faith and to call others to repentance and faith. We don't want to just improve people's lives here on earth. We want them to know the author of life and to enter into the fullness of life with you. Awaken our evangelistic zeal and help us live for your glory. Mm. Amen. Amen. Mm. Well, you'll be hearing from us. Uh, well, you'll be hearing from James, <laughs> but, maybe. I have no clue. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I think I haven't, I haven't f- nailed it down, so just stay tuned. Stay tuned. If you subscribe to the pod, then you'll yeah. get, you know, it'll come up when it's available. Yeah. And uh, we will be putting on a special Christmas episode. Like I said, I'm not sure when that'll be. Um, you want to give one quick shout out of like something you're thankful for as we uh, move towards Thanksgiving in two days? I'm thankful that um, I don't know how long this episode has been, or I would 55 minutes. So let's end it here. I'm very thankful for. Uh, well. There's a lot of things I'm thankful for. <laughs> well, I'm, let's just keep going. No. Yeah, yeah. I'm very thankful for my family, for my wife and my my immediate family um, that uh, I'm going to get to spend. I, there's a lot of people who aren't looking forward to spending time with their family mm. this Thursday, and uh, I've never had that burden. And um, I love my family. I love spending time with them. I love being with them. That is a gift. Not everyone has that. Yeah, for blessing sure. and um, so I'm mm-hmm. thankful for, for what God has given me in that um, cool. which is undeserved and not everybody has yeah cool I think 
I've had a lot of years, man, where I feel like I get to Thanksgiving and I'm just thankful for the grace of God to like, that just kind of sustains you in the midst of stuff. And this has been a thoroughly exhausting year, you know, for, yeah, yeah. for most people and in so many ways. Um, but I, I really do look, step back and I look at it and despite all of the craziness of 2020, I don't, I don't know if the health of our family, my marriage, our church, just relationships across the board, extended family. I feel like those are in the cumulatively or, or, or uh, yeah, cumulatively best place all simultaneously that maybe they've ever been. That's great. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, like, it's a gift. I don't want to take that lightly. And I'm really grateful that God's kept us healthy in the midst of all this and safe. And like, he's been very gracious to our church and um, just blown away that, that we are where we are when you consider all things. Um, yeah. So. Well, there you go. There you go. I hope everybody has a good Thanksgiving um, and a yeah. good Christmas. Happy Thanksgiving from weekday worship. Happy Thanksgiving from weekday worship. See you guys.